Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. All right guys, let's dive in. I think what we get caught up in a lot is, is unit count, right? Yep. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I own a thousand units or whatever yeah, the case might right. be. At the end of the day, I don't care about that. I want to know what your net worth is and totally. I want to know what your monthly cash flow numbers are. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, guys, thank you for joining me here again on Just Our Real Estate. I appreciate it as always. I appreciate you taking the time. Time is the one thing you cannot get back and you are here with me. I hope you don't regret it and I hope you don't want this time back because I am gonna try to deliver again for you guys and make sure this is well worth your time. So to that end, I have someone on the uh, on the interview and on the show today that I'm interviewing uh, that is really, really cool. He's done some great stuff, slightly different angle than some of the other guests that I've had. And I think we'll speak to those of you who are looking for uh, to build a buy and hold portfolio buy and buy and hold business and he's sort of done a lot of different things he's he's a broker uh, he's had a property management company and we're gonna get into all that and he's a buy and hold guy now and he's into the generational wealth model and I think that's really really cool and I think a lot of people are very interested in that path uh, so on the show today I have Sean Morrissey Sean began as a buy and hold real estate investor in 2003 with a two-bedroom condo in Hanover Park Illinois having earned his Illinois real estate broker's license in 2007, Sean survived the market crash and assisted homeowners throughout the Chicagoland area and opened Chicagoland Realty Group Partners LLC in 2011. Since that time, Sean has managed over 700 rental transactions, 200 plus homes, and owns and manages his own rental property portfolio in the western sub suburbs of Chicagoland area. Sean focuses the majority of his time in growing and managing his real estate portfolio while hosting a podcast called Landlording for Life. So this guy knows his stuff, and I'm psyched to have him on the show, guys. So without any further ado, I give you Sean Morrissey. Hey, Sean, thank you for being on the show, man. Thanks for getting to doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So this is cool. I always like, uh, I, I, particularly, it's fun to interview other podcasters because uh, uh, you kind of get it. You know, you get the flow of the show and how things typically go. So real quick at the top of this, I just want to uh, mention one more time that you have the podcast Landlording for Life. Great podcast. I've checked it out. Very valuable stuff in there. Good interviews, good information. So definitely go and check that out. But uh, I really want to dive more into your uh, your world, your background. You're slightly different than some of the guests that I've had on. I, I do a lot of uh, flipping and wholesaling uh uh, heavy content in my shows. I do have buy and hold investors on for sure. Um, but you have that 
broker license and it kind of uh, is a little bit different dynamic probably than some of the folks that I interview who are just straight investors. So let's let's dial back the time a little bit and let's talk about maybe before you were in real estate, unless this is the first thing you've ever done as far as a job and what got you into it and, and why why real estate? Why not be a doctor or a lawyer or something? Like why real? I always, I'm always curious why people pick real estate and it's not always yeah. the same. So let's let's yeah. hear that background. Yeah, you betcha. It's a little different for, for all of us, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, my story, it really starts back in the year uh, 1999, right? So I, I graduated from uh, from college, uh, went to Purdue University, got a bachelor degree in restaurant management, and uh, decided to join the Peace Corps, where I lived in uh, Western Kenya um, for some time. Really? Um, anyways, came back home, um, ultimately started a career um, really in restaurants, right? Restaurant management. So it would have been uh, roughly 2001. And right around that time frame, my, my father um, basically introduced me to a book um, called, um, gosh, I'm not going to have it nailed down verbatim, but basically using investment real estate as a tax shelter, right? Okay. And um, that was the first time I'd ever been introduced to the fact that when you own investment real estate, that it eases some tax burden. So I uh, went to dinner with my dad, introduced me to that, read the book. Um, a few weeks later, and then all of a sudden, I started joining uh, different real estate investment clubs here in the Chicagoland area, okay. um, where I'd start talking to investors and, and mostly landlords for the most part, uh, but folks that have been in the business for some time, and finally decided to buy my first property. Um, I mean, it was about 18 months later, but it basically was June of 2003 here in the Chicagoland area. Um, you know, back in those days, it was a few years before things really started toppling, right, when it comes to uh, the market crashing here in the Chicagoland area. So I had the fortunate opportunity really to, to get burned a couple times by a few tenants, um, yeah. with that property in particular. Um, you know, one you know, had to go through a full blown eviction. I had another one where she filed bankruptcy halfway through the lease. And if uh, there's any landlords out there, you know, you're familiar with the fact that when someone files bankruptcy, they can actually take possession of your property. Without leaving? <laughs> no, I'd love yeah, to talk about that for a minute. If, yeah. When you're, when you're, let's do it at the end, but I, I or sometime. But I didn't sure. know that. That's news to me, and I'm a landlord. Yeah, it's uh, you know, fortunately, this lady decided to leave about 30 days into her bankruptcy. But I remember having a conversation with an attorney at that time, and they're like, "Yeah, she could pretty much live there for the next six months, not pay you a penny, and you can't evict her because her uh, bankruptcy hadn't been discharged." So, wow. having said all that, I got I got lucky with that one. But ultimately, it's through those experiences where you get burned um, that you learn the most, right? So, yeah. fast forward a little bit, you know, 2004, bought a single family home where I I basically house hacked it. I basically lived in one room, rented out the rest, ended up finishing the basement and living down there, and then I rented up rented out a total of uh, five rooms in this big old house. Um, here in, in uh, the western suburbs. Okay. Um, bought another property in 07, right? And we all know where that's kind of headed. And then, um, you know, ultimately did a, uh, when I met my, my wife, um, we ultimately bought a condo, lived there for a few years, and we've rented that ever since. So, you know, up until the time in which the market crashed, you know, I had a handful of properties, but really what I was doing is, is building my experience level as a landlord so that when I got my broker license in, in 2007, uh, late 2006 actually, and hung it with a Keller Williams brokerage here locally. Um, when the market kind of tanked, ultimately what I did is I approached homeowners that couldn't sell, didn't want to go through foreclosure, but didn't have any equity. 
And if there was a margin there for them to rent their house, uh, we'd assist them in renting their house. And then that evolved into property management come 2010. So basically what I was doing is I was using my, my landlord systems to assist my property management systems with the idea that once that property management system got built up and the market came back, that I could then start buying more investment properties, rental properties, and I'd have my strong management systems in place. So, you know, I'll kind of leave it there from now, you know, basically in 2010, that's when that all started. And, uh, you know, from there as the market turned, uh, so did my brokerage trajectory, and so did my investor trajectory. but I'm, I'm primarily a, a buy and hold real estate investor these days. Um, hence why my podcast is called landlording for life and then a residential broker with uh, some, some commercial stuff mixed in from time okay. to time. Cool. So I want to dial way back even before the real estate, the Peace Corps. What was, uh, what was that like? Why did you decide to do that? How old were you when you did that? I'm interested. That's kind of a, it's, it's different, right? I mean, it's not everyone does that. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's funny when I was in college, what was it? Sophomore year through senior year, I was involved in like an international exchange organization where I met, you know, lots of kids would come to uh, the greater Indianapolis area and we'd host them or, or folks from um, our chapter would go to other countries and I had the opportunity to do that. So I was always really interested in international travel and whatnot yeah. and giving back to the world as well. Right. So, um, you know, ultimately the Peace Corps kind of de decides where you'll be stationed based on, your level of language and your skill set. And back in those days, it was like, um, well, <laughs> what third world country wants a guy who speaks English that basically has a degree in restaurant management? <laughs> really, no, not, not many. So fortunately, right. um, they were able to station me in uh, Western Kenya, which is, is basically, you know, English is basically the second language outside of Swahili. And then um, I basically worked at an Institute of Technology, which is basically like a community college. And I helped folks in under, you know, basically working with computers. Yeah. So it was, uh, and then did a lot of community projects. So it was, uh, I mean, it was an awesome experience. I'm, wow. That's one of those things where I'm, my goal is to, to go back there and to give back yeah. um, over the next couple of years here. That's cool. I, you know, I, so, there's a lot of people that I have on the show that I, I kind of know a little bit more about their background. I know the kind of really cool um, charitable and, and things that they do that are that to give back and to be, you know, just a good person basically and to try to try to do what they can do. And then it's always nice when I stumble upon, you know, I don't know if it's karma, if it's just something, but I love having people on. I didn't know that about you, obviously, and, and I stumbled upon that. So anyways, I think that's cool. I think it says a lot about people. I mean, you, you sort of glossed over it and you're not obviously making, you know, it to focus of what we're talking about, but I think it's important to highlight, right? I mean, um, you know, good person giving back, doing what you can do. I, I think that's great. And I applaud you for that. Not everyone will disrupt their life and their conveniences to go and do something like that. So, uh, oh, good on you for that. Um, so the first property you talked about, you decided, I think you said 2003, uh, bought your first investment property. How did you finance that? How did that work for a younger person? Actually, it was, uh, it was kind of a traditional route, right? So back in those days, um, used a local realtor, um, that has assisted me in finding the property. So it was an MLS deal, but okay. I financed it in a kind of an interesting way. I suppose it, it was really through a first time home buyer, uh, program our county offered. So in essence, um, the way it broke down is, is 3% down payment. 60% um, of the first mortgage was carried by a local bank at a normal interest rate okay. with something like 30% was carried by another local bank, but at a reduced interest rate, which at that time was 4%. 
And then the third mortgage, which made up the remaining balance, was basically a 0% loan from the county. So basically, you got a reduced payment um, out of it. Now, um, so that was the advantage, right? The I was able to get a reduced payment, um, but really didn't find much of a distressed property because I didn't have a whole lot of cash, right? When you're buying your first rental property, you just got to find something that you can, you know, basically turn over and rent out right away. And that's what this was. Um, So reduced payment was the advantage. The disadvantage is always been that I can't refinance the property. I can't pull equity out of it because of the fact that it has this third lien, really this 0%. Uh, county loan on it. So interestingly enough, you know, I've had that property, it's going up on 17 years this month and uh, I'm actually looking at selling it next month. So I've had the same tenant in there for roughly eight years now and she's going to be moving out. I'm going to put some improvements into the property the last week of June, first week of July, uh, put it on the market uh, with the idea that I'll perform a 1031 exchange and then roll that equity into something that's actually in a cash flow and that I can refinance out of every right. couple of years so I can take that equity and put it back to work. Is so there, is there equity uh, in it now? Is there actual equity in it now? There is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We should that, you know, it'll, it's not crazy good. It's probably 40 to $50,000, you know, after holding something 17 years and really it's been principal pay down with a little, you know, there's been some appreciation. Yeah. Um, but the Chicagoland market, you know, kind of depends on where you're at, what you bought at, but this particular property and that, crazy appreciation and it's far enough from home uh, being that I'm kind of a self-managed guy to where um, it's just a little too far. So it it makes sense for more than anything, just putting that equity back to work, um, getting that equity out, putting it into a a duplex or four unit and get that cash flow, do that value add and, you know, two, three years from now, refinance it out and do it all over again. Yeah, that makes sense. And then in 2007, you got your broker's license. Now, just out of curiosity, as a guy who's an investor, I've been an investor since I started in 2008, never got my realtor's license or broker's license. Why Why did you do that? What was the reason? What's the advantage for doing something like that? So, yeah, what's kind of funny is I, I actually um, initially took the classes back in 2005, um, the broker classes here in Illinois. And the whole idea was really so that I could use the MLS so I'd have access to more deals and be a better investor. And, and back in those days, that that made some sense because mm-hmm. Zillow isn't what it is today or Realtor.com or Redfin. Now a lot of this information's all, all public, right? Yeah. Um, so back in those days, that made sense. So I took the class in 2005, actually decided to put off taking the test for three months so I can, you know, I basically went to visit a buddy in Detroit. It was stupid. Okay. And I failed the test. <laughs> so failed the test the first time. Decided a year later, like, I'm taking this thing. I'm going to pass it. I'm going to be done with it. And uh, and did so. And initially, yeah, it made me a better investor. But I really started inching my way into really being a realtor um, at the same time on the side. I was working full-time in restaurants from 2001 to 2009, trying okay. to get my bearing on, you know, how I'm going to make uh, full-time income in yep. real estate agency. And, uh, and that's really what I did is I kind of did real estate agency on the side from 07 to 2009 and then transitioned full time, um, just after I got married actually to my wife. So she made the jump with me in that respect and, uh, and then opened up my own brokerage in 2011. So, um, that's kind of from there it's been, you know, building property management portfolio, uh, for the community, for the local area, for a brokerage, and then um, building a, a rental portfolio here in the Chicagoland suburbs. Okay. That, and that makes sense. So 
if you could do it over again, would you still get your your brokerage license? Do you think that that was a good move? And would you recommend other people do that? Does it make sense? I know it made sense for you. It doesn't make sense for everybody. But in general, do you think that's the right move? I don't think there's a firm yes or no to it because there's a cost that comes to holding your license. Um, And and there's a responsibility when it comes to disclosing mm-hmm. to um, folks that are selling their home that you are an agent, you're not going to represent them and yeah. you know, you don't host their fiduciary duty. So there is a responsibility there. Um, there is a cost to play in that arena. Yep. Uh, but at the same time too, as, as I'm sure you're aware, I mean, the commission savings can be significant as well. Um, you know, so long as you follow those rules. Yeah. So, yeah, at the end of the day, if you're going to perform less than five transactions a year for other buyers and sellers in your local market, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense here in the Chicagoland area to have yeah. your broker license, you know, just be the investor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's worked out for me and it's primarily because of the fact that I expanded on that brokerage piece really from 2007 to 2018 and then kind of flipped the switch and went back to uh, pushing the investor mode more since that time, since 2018. Okay. A couple questions. Do you have uh, realtors who are under your brokerage or is it just you? I used to. Yeah. So um, okay. when I opened up the brokerage in 2011, I had six agents that came over with me from Keller Williams in that first year um, that basically assisted me in, in showing buyers homes and renters properties and mm-hmm. listing properties. Now, what I came to learn from that is that wearing that managing broker cap comes with a lot of responsibility. You need to have agents that basically know what they're doing or you're going to get calls from them with a lot mm-hmm. of questions, calls from other brokers saying, Hey, they're not playing by the rules. Yeah. So that was its own set of challenges. Couple that with the fact that really I, I own a mom and pop shop, right? Mm-hmm. So unless these agents are out there hustling for the next deal, um, it falls on me to generate that revenue. And that's right. really what it came down to is, unfortunately, I came to find that having agents, you need to make sure they've got a pipeline in place if you really want to bring them aboard, yeah. pipeline being like a lead generation pop- pipeline. Sure. Or it just, you know, you're, you're carrying the weight of keeping those doors open. Yeah. So basically, you're wearing the hat of a managing broker, managing these agents, coupled the fact that, that you're wearing a hat of being the, the agent um, myself. So it was really, I came to figure out that it's a lot of work and I only had six agents. I can't imagine how brokerages that have like over a hundred agents, how that managing broker sleeps at night. without getting <laughs> So yeah. it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's, uh, you live and learn through that stuff. So basically I, I kind of toned it down to about three agents, right? Folks that were producing folks that, um, I knew were doing a good job. And then, um, you know, what ended up happening with me is I ended up selling our third party property management portfolio back in early 2018. And then I went down to one agent and then just myself. So I'm more of a lifestyle focused guy these days. You know, I like the, I got into it because you know, everything else you hear, right. Financial freedom. And that's financial freedom means not building a mega company filled with thousands of people. And then ultimately finding that you're working harder than you ever worked before. And that's, that's you know, huge. That's, you know, you're that's right. not really for me. Yep. Some people see that that what they think is that sexy business with all the employees and, and scaling like crazy. It's not for everybody. And it doesn't always give you, you know, it's weird. It's We go after this stuff sometimes for finan- or financial freedom, but also time freedom. And we realized 
sometimes the more people you bring on, the more you're doing, the more the financial freedom seems like a trap a little bit because you get this monster that has to be fed and then not everyone wants to manage people. So that's a whole other thing, right? You start scaling up and hiring, you have to manage people. So I, I totally get it. Um, I know that you said I was going to ask you this question, but you you don't do the property management now. Is that what I heard you say back in 2018? You liquidated. We sold it um, with the idea that I was going to use that capital to buy more buildings, and that's basically what I did. We look into property management from time to time. I'll help a buddy out, but we mm -hmm. don't actively market. We don't actively um, we don't actively take on new clients necessarily. Now in 2021, that may change. Yeah. Um, you know, part of the reason I, I sold the management portfolio was uh, partially because of the fact that a lot of national property management players came into the Chicagoland market looking mm. to buy up the little guys, mm -hmm. and they had a lot of uh, private equity behind them, so they were able to uh, make offers you couldn't really refuse. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, we I, what I came to find was that, um, gosh, there's a quote, and I'm not going to quote it right, but basically it's, if you're not recreating your business systems every five years, you're going to fall behind. And that's okay. what I was noticing is that ultimately technology is moving so fast that um, our property management systems were becoming ancient even okay. after from 2011 to 2018. So to me, it felt best to strip it all down, focus on my investment side with the idea that, you know, quite possibly next year I'll, I'll come back with a, uh, a more efficient model um, that will ultimately you know, benefit the local landlords because it'll be more cost effective yeah. for the services they receive. Um, but yeah, really recreating that business model every five years, especially in property management, certainly seems necessary because it's a, it's a service oriented business, just like yep. being a real estate broker is. So, okay. A couple questions about that, the brokerage, the, the, the property management. Number one, was it a profitable venture for you? Was it something you did to just sort of like have control over something that was important to your portfolio? Like how how much do you look back at that and say, that was actually a really good idea. I'm glad I did it. It made sense. I made money or, you know, I, cause I know people think about this, like I should just manage my own properties and maybe I'll just manage everyone else's properties. And they sort of try to create this, 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 um, property management company out, out of, you know, the friends of people that they know that have. So is that smart to do? Is there, is there, did you go about it in a way that made sense at the time? And was it profitable? Uh, well, the systems I started off with in, in 2011 by 2018, I could, you know, basically I could sense that I had scaled this thing as far as I could. And part of it was just based on the system design, right? And where I, where I failed to certain capacities. Now, whether it was profitable or not, it certainly was profitable. Um, you know, looking back, I spent way too much money on marketing and trying to okay. chase online it's stuff that wasn't converting. So, um, you know, this, you know, if there's a next time around, I would certainly focus on that yeah. um, in terms of, putting our marketing dollars into smarter places. But at the same time too, you know, what I've, what I've come to realize is, you know, just the use of virtual assistants is uh, very scalable from where it was, you know, prior to 2015. Yeah. Um, basically anybody I had prior to 2015 was local boots on the ground. And naturally that comes with a higher expense sure. and higher responsibility. So, yep. um, yeah, so there's certainly opportunity when it comes to payroll, there's certainly opportunity when it comes to us spending too much money on marketing costs. But at the same time too, from 2015 to 2018, everybody and their mother um, that had a real estate license seemed to want to get into the property management game. Yeah. Now, having said that, if you've had no rental properties, if you've had no experience managing properties, 
stay away from property management. I mean, I've noticed a lot of folks will just say, yeah. oh, I could do this on the side and manage 10 to 20 properties. Well, when you're doing that, you really have no systems in place that warrant any kind of um, advantage over other property managers in yeah. the market. Yeah. Couple that with the fact that you're on call 24 hours a day typically, and you've got to, you've got to be responsive, right? Yeah. So having systems in place that are scalable is, that's yeah, the name of the game yeah. outside of having your real estate license. That's that's really good advice for people. So you mentioned that you have sold the brokerage. You got the the offer you couldn't refuse. What does your portfolio look like now? Like just give people a sense of how many doors or how many you know units that you're you're managing now. Yeah. So I, I kind of look at my portfolio similar to uh, you know playing the game of Monopoly, right? Where I started off with a, a condo, a single family home, a single family home, a condo from 2011 to 2017, primarily had a series of condos. I mean, basically I bought a series of condos that were in foreclosure, right? From mm -hmm. 2011 to 2015, bought a 10-unit portfolio in 2016, bought a 16-unit building in 2018, bought a six-unit building in 2018, and then bought a couple of duplexes in 2019. So, you know, as it stands, I own like 30, 30 buildings or 51 units. Okay. Um, you know, my goal by the end of this year isn't so much, uh, I think what we get caught up in a lot is, is unit count, right? Yep. Like oh, I'm, I'm, I own a thousand units or yeah, whatever the case might right. be. At the end of the day, I don't care about that. I want to know what your net worth is and totally. I want to know what your monthly cash flow numbers are. Yep. So for me, I've translated my goals to monthly cash flow numbers. And you know what I want to get to by the end of this year, which I'm not going to lie, COVID is throwing a wrench in everything, Yeah. especially you know with financing, right? And, and bridge financing in totally. particular. But um, my goal is by the tw end of 2020 to have a monthly net cash flow numbers of 20,000 a month with the idea that Really, from there, I would start focusing on uh, principal pay down over the next, you know, probably the rest of my life, the next 10, 20 years, get the properties paid off. And now I've, I've built a rock solid yep. real estate portfolio. So, yep. you know, I'm at a stage still where I'm still trying to use leverage to buy properties, do value add, cash out refinances every couple of years, yep. and then use those funds to, um, buy more properties. And I'll continue to do that probably for the next two to three years until I hit that 20,000 number. Yep. Um, and then ultimately I'll focus after that point on uh, principal pay down and really focus on building net worth. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that. You're hundred percent right. And I wasn't, you know, I, I'm asking, I really was asking what your portfolio looks like because I wanted to get a sense of how many only because my my next question was going to be, do you self-manage? I assume that you do because you have those systems and processes. Um, but for the most part, other people that you talk to, do you recommend they self-manage or that they use a, a management company if they're not, if they don't have a background of owning a, a property management company? No, that's, that's a great question. And one that I, I feel like I'm qualified to answer. So I tend to recommend that until you get to your like 10th property uh, or 10th door, I should say like 10 units, 10 unit building or 10th single family home, um, you self-manage prior okay. to that. And there's a, a couple of reasons, but really the, the primary reason is so you build experience being a landlord. You've got to be able to hold your property manager accountable. And in order to hold them accountable, you have to know what the day-to-day -day duties are. So if you get rent from that property manager on the sixth of the month, you don't go reaming them out. Um, and the reason I say that is because 
any property manager that's got any kind of scalability behind them these days is using a property management software mm -hmm. with electronic funds transfer systems. And usually out of their control, those fund transfer systems take anywhere from one to three business days. So when you get rent on the sixth, that's actually pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> if you get rent on the 15th of the month, well, now you've got reason to talk to them because that's yeah. a little too late. So having said all that, um, you know, it's just one example, but at the end of the day, um, you really need to build up that experience base as a landlord and get burned a couple of times, in my opinion. And then you can go out there, hire a property manager, know what a good deal is for a property manager, what good systems um, translate to for the dollar. And then you use that property manager to to scale upwards and outwards and, and build your portfolio to, you know, whatever your goals, your goals are, I suppose. Um, but yeah, so that's, okay. that's kind of the rule of thumb with me. 10 properties tends to be a, a good number to with. Yeah, that's good info. All right, guys, sorry for the interruption, but I just want to really quick remind you that Flip Hacking Live this year is on October 15th, 16th, and 17th. It's going to be packed full of amazing real estate investors just dishing, telling you everything that they're doing in their market to be successful, to be profitable, to scale, just all of their secrets and, and tactics and tricks that they're doing to be successful in their market. And because this is a virtual event, now we're going to bring this to you live in your home. You don't have to travel. All of the worries about traveling and COVID and are people going to be wearing masks? Are they going to try to shake my hand? Like, How far are we going to sit apart? All of those fears, if you had them, are gone because we're going to bring it right to your house. So the fact that it's a virtual event, in my opinion, probably means we're going to be able to make this even better. I'm going to be speaking at the event. It's going to be amazing. We're going to send out swag boxes. You're going to get free stuff. It's just going to be awesome. And right now, the tickets are so cheap. They're only $2.97. That price is going to go up. And that's exactly why I'm interrupting this right now to tell you the price is going up soon. Go grab your tickets now. You can go to www.best realestateevent.com. That's a new URL. It's a little easier to remember, and I thought that would be helpful. So go to bestrealestateevent.com. If you go and get your tickets before the end of August, send me proof that you bought them before the end of August. I will enter you in a drawing for me to pay for your ticket. So this thing could even be free. It's a no-brainer, guys. The cost of the ticket is insanely low. It's not going to stay this low. Go grab it now or you will regret it because this is going to be an event like no other. So go grab your ticket. Go to bestrealestateevent.com and I hope to see you there. All right, let's get back to the interview. As a, as a former property manager, uh, owning that company, and you don't anymore, so hopefully <laughs> I'm going to ask you something. It's a little bit leading, but, but hopefully it's something you can be candid about. If I come to you with one property and I need you to manage it, um, or if I come to you with 30 properties, obviously, is there anything to the fact that you're going to get a little bit more attention if you have 30 properties that you're bringing to this property manager as opposed to one. So when you say, I want to have a conversation if you don't get the rent by the 15th, you know, is having 10 properties before you go there, is any part of that because it just gives you a little bit more visibility in their company and a little, maybe a little bit more attention? Yeah, I, I tend to think if, if you bring 30 properties to a property manager rather than one, uh, you're going to be the focus of their uh, of their attention more often than not because yeah. you know any any property manager is going to look at their the revenue stream that comes in off yeah. of management fees from either of those and see what makes sense. Now, having said that, typically when you have thirty properties you're giving somebody, you're going to get a better deal from a property manager just based on scalability, based on um, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, based based on the number of properties you're given. I'll just leave yeah, it at that. Yeah. So for instance, what our model would be is for every four units we would manage, you would get some kind of small discount in, in management fee. Um, and anybody that's looking to transfer over a portfolio should be doing that same thing. Okay. Use that portfolio to your advantage to get a better deal on monthly management fees for sure. Um, Cause yeah, if it's just one property, um, you're typically going to pay full price. And at the same time, uh, me as a property manager, I'm going to make sure that that property is in a good location, is in acceptable condition, and is going to attract quality people. Because yeah. if it's going to attract, you know, D-class tenants, that's going to create more phone calls than a management fee can cover. Yeah. And it's not going to be worth us taking that property on. So any smart property manager is going to want to make sure that the the type of property, the condition, the location, who it's going to attract as a tenant is going to be reflective of the management fee they're going to charge. Yeah. So that ultimately that's going to be a, a profitable property that's going to be managed. That makes sense. Um, so yeah. Okay. There. Cool. What, uh, in general, you've been doing this a long time. You've managed a lot of properties. What's some of the bigger mistakes that self-managed uh, landlords make when they're tenanting their property or managing their property? Like what are some of the big ones that people do all the time? I think the, the biggest one I tend to see are folks are just in it to squeeze every penny out of it. Right. So, you know, for instance, I've had a gentleman recently approach me about a, a three bedroom he has here in town. He's rented it for the last five years and he um, he's been pretty good as of late, but initially he didn't want to do any, any updates to the property. Didn't want okay. to do anything. And I look at this property and I'm like, this is the kind of property that's going to attract a, a D class tenant, right? Somebody that's got a credit score below 600, somebody where the, the rent income ratio is going to be awful. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you, you get what you pay for, right? If you don't put any money into the property to attract the quality tenants, you're going to get the bad tenants. You're going to be chasing rent. You're going to be, dealing with repairs all the time. Yeah. So I think folks out there that have a small portfolio or ultimately are looking to scale, just understand you've got to set money aside for capital expenditures. Yeah. You've got to make improvements to that property so that you meet the market's expectations. And if you don't do that, it's going to, it's going to catch up to you and you're going to be, you're going to be drowning and drowning in yeah. debt, I suppose, because you're eventually going to be asked to do those repairs or selling the property as is at a discount. Yeah. So um, yeah, keep up with your repairs. That's that's probably the biggest mistake I see. Okay. How bad do people miss the mark? And this is something I'm, I'm asking this because I, I self-managed for a while and I did the um, screening for new renters. And I, I know that I was tempted to throw the first person who would give me the rent I wanted and I got burned every time I did it. Right. So how often is it like rent that you, you know, the, the rent um, amount that you want versus the strong tenant. And what are some of the warning signs of a bad tenant when you're screening? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, our, our criteria is very similar to, to everybody else that I hear out there with, with some kind of qualification behind them. So, you know, really want to see three times the rent amount in total monthly net income. And, and what we mean by net income is, you know, your, your W-2 job minus taxes, minus healthcare. Mm -hmm. And then if there's alimony that's going to get paid out, you know, minus all that stuff, stuff that ends up in their bank account on ideally a weekly or biweekly basis. Yeah. So we want to see three times that amount. Now on the credit score side, you know, it, it can vary to some capacity, but the rule of thumb is typically about a, a credit score of 625 or higher right now in our market tends to be what I deem to be acceptable, but a credit score is so vague 
that really what you need to do is, is dig into that report and what you're looking for, in my opinion, are any late payments over the last 12 months. Yeah. Um, and then what kind of debt do they have? You know, if they've got a car payment that makes up, you know, 25% of their monthly net income, like clearly that could be an issue. Yeah. If there's a lot of um, uh, revolving credit, uh, that's, you know, might be, you know, your Kohl's card or jewelry store card with a high balance on it that they haven't defaulted on, but it's high. I mean, there's some warning signs there. So you got to dig deeper than the score, yeah. but at the end of the day, um, you don't want to make sure there's, there's not a ton of debt that's, that's stacked up. Yeah. Even if they've not missed a payment coupled with the fact that their, their, their net income to rent ratio is, is good. Um, naturally, I don't like anybody that's had an eviction. Anybody who has an eviction has a story to say, oh, it wasn't me. Yeah. Um, you know, and we're certainly willing to listen to that side of the story, right? But at the end of the day, you've got to bring a pretty good case to a pretty good set of paperwork to show that it wasn't you. Yeah. Um, so I, I tend not to work it, with anyone. That has it ever been, not them? Has it ever been not them? <laughs> man, I, I can't think of the last time I was just like, oh, yeah, you've had this eviction yeah. and I'm going to let you off the hook. Like yeah. it just, yeah, yeah it's, it's, yeah, it, that comes with, that comes with risk. Sure. Um, and, and, uh, what else am I missing? The criminal background. Um, you know, we run the felony nationwide criminal background checks. Um, now those can be, those can be tricky, right? And the pendulum is swung, especially in the Chicagoland area to be empathetic to those that have had some kind of criminal background because they okay. need somewhere to live to. Right. Yep. So, you know, if it depends on the felony, right. If it's <laughs> exactly. something that might be considered fairly minor or not property related, yeah. we'll work with you on that. If it's, you know, something in the nature of domestic abuse or murder, you know, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole other story. So, um, yeah, I mean, in those, quite frankly, we get, we get very few of because the properties that we look to purchase, the properties we look to manage aren't going to be your, your D class properties. Mm-hmm. They're going to be folks then uh, really the B and C range for us is our sweet spot around here. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the rule of thumbs there. And, um, you know, and then what we like to do is set up our leases so that within the final 60 days of any lease terminated, we're allowed to show that property so that we're able to turn over the property within a few days of that tenant moving out. So yeah. we've got that rental income stream uh, rolling and that nobody's out any more than, you know, a week of right. rental income in order to turn that property over and get somebody else in there. All right. I'm going to ask you more of a, of a personal question, personal for me, not you, but so my my wife and I are we're in the process of selling our house and we think we want to build or, or we want to buy a different house, but we haven't found the house and I don't want to stress myself out with that like contingent on finding a new house baloney. So we're going to sell our house. We're going to move into a rental short term, right? Until we can okay. find what we want. So my wife, we have a dog, a big dog, German Shepherd, okay. six years old, you know, whatever. He's not young, but um, so we've been having this discussion and, and we have our credit score is great. I have an 800 credit score. The loan, the income to, to rent is not going to be an issue. It's going to be well, well beyond three times, but very few houses in my area that we're looking at will allow dogs, especially big dogs. Yeah. I have told my wife, listen, when, when, when we can show them that the rent income is grossly in our favor and that the credit scores are grossly in our favor and that there's never been any issues with credit or payments or defaults or bankruptcy or anything like that. I think that I can show them that and we're going to be strong enough that they'll say a six-year-old dog, we don't love it, but we would rather take you with your six-year-old dog, even if I gave them like 
a big deposit, like a cleaning deposit or something to make them feel better if something happened, uh, we will be able to work it out. Now, in your experience and as a landlord, if I came to you with that scenario, I want to buy one of your nicer rentals or rent one of your nicer rentals. I've got this dog. You said no dogs, but here's all the other stuff that I'm going to use as my argument. Would you consider that? You're going to kind of break a, a debate between my wife and I. You're going to settle it for us. Well, let me ask you this. So you had mentioned short-term rental. How how long of a time period are you looking to rent? Um, I would probably be willing to sign a year lease and I would okay. I, I would honor that, but I would probably ask if a six-month lease would be acceptable. Like okay. I would I would prefer six months. So yeah, so there's there's two things there. One being the length of the lease, the second one being the the dog or the size of the dog. So anything less than 12 months, typically you've got to pay a premium in order to get that short-term lease. So, um, you know, on our local multiple listing service, for instance, you can actually, there's a field you can fill out as the listing agents saying, you know, will you allow short-term leases, yes or no? And if you put yes, then typically you're gonna get calls from all sorts of insurance companies in the yeah. area saying, hey, I've had a family that's had yep. a fire, will you accept a three or six month lease? Yep. Now, I've had folks that'll do that, but they're typically gonna look for like, you know, maybe a 25 to 30% premium on what the rent already is. So if rent's a thousand bucks, then, you know, probably 1300 because of the short-term factor. So 12 yep. months is going to be important there. Okay. Now regarding the dog, because of the fact that it's uh, a large dog, um, you certainly are going to have issues. And rather than lead with, will you accept dogs, Mr. or Mrs. Landlord, even though it says no pets, I would just lead with, I've got a thousand dollar refundable pet deposit for our dog. Will you take it? You know, just throw them a, a, a nice figure, but make sure it's refundable yep. um, so that you're not necessarily out any money. That's how I would uh, approach that situation. Because if you just approach somebody saying, Hey, I've got a, you know, 80 pound German shepherd or hundred pounds German shepherd yeah. more often than not, the first thing that comes to the landlord's head is damage. Right. Yeah. But if yeah. you lead with, I've got this money yeah. for a dog, I think you'll be in a much better place. And, and, you know, with us, the rule of thumb when it comes to refundable pet deposits is it's always reflective of the breed, the size, the age of that, of that animal, yeah. right? Of that dog. And really what we're looking at is flooring damage and then baseboard damage for the most part. Yeah. So really, you know, the cost of cleaning the carpet perhaps plus, you know, a 25% premium for potential yeah. damage. So, yeah. You know, with your dog, $1,000, I think, would go a long way with a lot of landlords. You could potentially get away with $500. Um, but, yeah, I would certainly lead okay. with uh, the fee because I think you'll you'll uh, you'll impress folks. That's something they probably don't see. So if far. I came to you with a 12-month lease and a $1,000 refundable deposit with a good credit score and good great income, would you, would, you, would, you would consider that seriously? Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. I mean, it's all, it's going to be reflective on the size of the property as well, right? Yeah. If you're looking at a 800 square foot property, I mean that all day long and take a thousand bucks because it's an 800 square foot property. If it's a 4,000 sure. square foot property, now a thousand dollars doesn't go as far yeah. because of the amount of flooring, but at the same time, you know, you'll, you'll find that sweet spot yep. in your market and okay. what, what the landlords are looking for. All right. All I heard is that I'm right. So I'm going to go tell my wife that I'm right. All right, good. <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a couple of other things I want to cover with you uh, before we're done here. You mentioned that, well, you didn't mention, we talked about it extensively, that you kind of switched from being broker-focused to being investor-focused. I know you sold your your property management company, but why why the focus shift? Why did you do Fantastic that? Fantastic question. Great question. Yes. I, I can. I, I love that question. Um, and it's, it's something that brokers miss. They miss the mark on all the time, I feel. And the, what it is, 
is you look at the ways in which, um, you know, buy and hold real estate in my case builds wealth, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got the, the appreciation ideally in your marketplace, you've got the rental cash flows, you've got the tax benefits and you've got the principal pay down. So you got four different ways in which you're building wealth, right? And really I got to credit this to uh, another great podcast out there. Um, Keith Weinhold and get rich education. I mean, he's, he's got so much content, but those are his four. And he likes to throw in a fifth, which is inflation benefits. Right. And now with all the stimulus money that the federal reserve has pumped in uh, to the economy, we, we should be seeing that as well over the next couple of years. So yep. having said all that, you've got four, let's call it five ways in which you build wealth through buying hold real estate with real estate agency. You've got to go out there and hustle every day. And I mean, meet people, Yep. and uh, generate leads. You've got to actually show them homes on the buy side. You've got to actually list their house, which is a little easier in my opinion to, to sell it. Um, and you've got to, it's very transactional. You got to go out yeah. there and do it again and again and again. And if you're good at it, ideally you build a referral base so that you don't have to work so hard to get those leads. But at the end of the day, it generates income through one way and that's through a transactional model. Yeah. Um, I look at flipping real estate in the similar format. You've got to go out there and hustle for your next deal in order to um, flip, flip that property. Yeah. Now it, it pays you much larger upfront agency pays you larger upfront than yep. buy and hold real estate does flipping does the same thing. But if you can see the bigger picture, meaning um, you know, for me, I'm in my 17th year now and I got caught up in 2008. So I see people that are light years ahead of me, right? In, mm-hmm. in regards to when they started and what they're doing now. Yeah. But if you can see that bigger picture and see how you're building these passive income streams, and it's not 100% passive. I mean, landlording requires work unless you get a property manager. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I'd like to think 20 years from now, I've put in a lifetime of work and have basically created generational wealth yeah. that I can pass on to my kids. And that's, that's really what I've been shooting for is that generational type of wealth, um, you know, the financial freedom aspect yep. rather than building a business that is ultimately very transactional and requires yeah. me to put in work and work and work in order to get a diamond. Yeah. So that's why I sold that piece of the business is um, I could see that transactional piece of it. And I could see that by pulling the equity out of that business and putting it into buy and hold real estate or at that time, multifamily, mm-hmm. um, I was able to um, compound that growth. Now, one, one last thing, which is kind of cool. So when I sold that business, I, I, I took the funds generated, I bought the 16 unit building and then I bought the six unit building. Now what's, yep. what's pretty awesome is a 16 unit building was a value add play, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm in the process of refinancing that building. I bought it for 875,000. I'm gonna be able, I, I got the appraisal back um, back in February, thank God, pre-COVID, and I'm able to use that appraisal. Yeah, that's great. I'm able to, I got that appraised out for 1.52, right? One, 1,520,000, right? So I almost, almost doubled the value. If there was a few other things looking back I did, I probably would have doubled the value in two years. So in essence, based on that cash out refi, I am now more than doubling the cash out that I got from the sale of the business okay. through the purchase of this building and the the value add put into it. So yeah, I mean, I, I look at that, that one transaction, not even including the six unit and I'm like home freaking run, man. I mean, yeah. it took me seven years to build up enough equity in the management business to solve what I sold it for. And it took me two years with that equity I sold it for 
to more than double yeah. that money. So, um, you know, you got to look for the right deal at the end of the day. Right. Yep. But, and you got to know what you're doing to do the value add, but, um, yeah, I mean, investment in real estate, right? That's why we do it. Totally. It's awesome. Just briefly speaking, how did you increase the value of that property? Was it, did you convert it to something? Did you just do renovations? Did you up the rent or all the, all those things? Or how did you do that? Yeah. So um, first and foremost, I found this property through a, like an off-market postcard campaign. Okay. Um, and, you know, don't think I have some killer postcard campaign because I, I don't. Um, <laughs> Those guys don't fact, get postcards don't... as often as single family homeowners, though. You know, I, I think you, you cut through the noise a little bit when you go to a multiple. little bit. Yeah. But I will say it's it's way more noisier out there now. Just yeah. two years later with these this postcard campaign. So anyways, off market postcard campaign ultimately had a seller that wanted to 1031 this building into a building in the city of Chicago. Okay. And he told me about his 1031 and his time frame. So now I'm like, <laughs> wow, that's valuable information. Yeah. Cause now I know that you need to meet your timelines and a 1031 in order to uh, roll over the funds. So that gave me some more leverage yeah. when it came to um, asking for concessions in mm -hmm. essence. Um, so anyways, did that use the concessions as leverage. Um, now basically we've updated what is it? 13 of 16 units at this point, replace the parking lot. Um, you know, we've put in about a hundred thousand dollars in improvements in okay. that building. But at the end of the day, through doing that, we were able to up the rents yeah. and then get the water bill under control. So we've, we've cut the water bill on that building by about 50%. Although I still pay it, I haven't used, you know, what would be called the rub system, the okay. ratio utility building system where we would yeah. basically push that bill out to the tenants. Haven't done that yet. There's still a little bit of value add on the bone. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I controlled the expenses through the water bill, um, got the rents up considerably. And through that and through, um, you know, just kind of buying right and with where multifamily's gone from 2015 on, yeah. uh, I was able to get a, a nice appraised value. Nice. And, uh, you know, thank goodness that appraisal was pre-COVID because now I've been told post-COVID that ultimately the values have been cut by anywhere from 10 to 20%. Really? Um, you know, and where we'll go from there, I'm not quite sure, but I'd, I'd certainly think multifamily is going to bounce back pretty nice. Okay. Um, you know, yeah. by 2021. You mentioned COVID. Just how, how has that affected your business? Has it been significant or where's the biggest impact that you're seeing for that? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what, I was, uh, when things rolled out around uh, St. Patrick's Day around here and, you know, those have been following uh, COVID and shelter in place. I mean, Illinois has been pretty conservative when it comes to uh, opening the state back up. So, you know, like everybody else, I was worried that, you know, am I gonna get April rent? And then mm -hmm. come mid April, am I gonna get May rent? And then come May, you know, am I gonna get June rent? It's been great. I mean, what are we, today's, it's it's June 8th, June 9th, and I'm at 97% collected. That's awesome. And I mean, if you would have asked me that question on March 17th, I would have been, I would have been scared. Yeah. I mean, as each month goes by, the stimulus check certainly helped for me, but it, June was the real wild card for me because of the fact that unemployment benefits here, you know, it's been yeah. real slow to respond. The stimulus checks were spent on May rent, but it's been, it's been good. I mean, I've, I had, um, you know, one tenant disclosed to me that he had coronavirus and because of that, he had to quarantine for a few weeks. Okay. So I worked with him a little bit um, in the month of June. Um, outside of that, yeah, like 97% collected. So we've done, we've done well, um, you know, thank goodness. 
Um, and it seems like things are slowly reopening. So yeah. let's just hope we don't get a second wave um, and that this vaccine comes along the horizon. Cause I yeah. think, you know, more good news we get, the more the economy is just going to pick up where it left off. Totally. I, I'm in a similar situation. I'm in Michigan. We were pretty conservative too. And same thing. I, I have, uh, I have about 20, uh, it's all single family for me. So I have 20 houses and, uh, I'm in the nineties too. I'm in the I'm mid I think in the low to mid nineties. As far as rent collection, it, I've been very pleasantly surprised at my tenants and it's awesome. It just, you know, you, you expect, or maybe brace for the worst. And, and it's nice to see that people still like, you know, pay their rent and they kind of keep up with their obligations, even though it's been a little bit tough. So that's been well, good. And, and you know, the other, the other point I want to bring up is I remember back in early March, like I'm on these different property manager forums and there was a real debate on like, how are you going to handle rents not collected? And you were, you were on two sides of the coin. One, you'd be very understanding, right? Mm -hmm. Which was the side I was on. I'd be understanding I'd work with folks, da, da, da. The other side was, this is the lease, this is the rules, this is how you follow the rules, yeah. you know, we're coming down hard. And I think you kind of reap what you sow in these scenarios mm -hmm. where ultimately, if you took care of your tenants and you were understanding to a point, but ultimately you looked out for the goodwill of yeah. your of your resident, yep. um, it paid off in this mm -hmm. circumstance. Yeah. Um, that location has to deal with it too. I, I feel like folks that had D-class rentals, you know, that worked on Section 8 with a guaranteed check probably got hit pretty hard. But at the end yeah. of the day, so long as you were a good landlord up until now, folks folks yeah. did the best they could for you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's important to, uh, to approach that mentality, I think, when it comes to uh, scenarios like these because uh, this is – I mean, the, the one thing in my real estate career that I can think of with this scenario is this is the one wild card where landlords' backs were really against the wall because we yeah. tenants don't have to pay rent, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, yeah. in the state of Illinois, it's till the middle of July. We can't do anything when it comes to evictions. Right. And tenants know that. So yeah. reap what you sow. I mean, you could be burn just as bad as they were. Totally. Yeah. I think that's smart. I, I like that too. It kind of rounds out our conversation. We started a little bit with Peace Corps and we rounded it out to treat your tenants right, you know, show them that you have their best interest in mind and be a conscientious landlord. And that kind of stuff comes out in the wash. You know, the people who, you know, just don't respond and kind of let people deal with bad situations. They might not have gotten rent because the tenants now, you know, say, what have you done for me or what you don't care about me? Why, why should I care? So that's yeah. awesome, man. It's awesome stuff. I, I, I want to thank you for being on. First of all, I, I, you were all busy. You've got things going on. You've got a lot happening. Um, so thank you for doing that. And I want to mention again, your podcast landlording for life, check that out. And, uh, it's a great podcast. I, I have listened to, uh, several episodes and I, I think you do a great job. It's super informative and, uh, it's just a good listen. So I, I suggest that everyone uh, listening, go and check that out. And, uh, for goodness sakes, uh, listen to it, subscribe, give them a rating and review. That is the absolute goal to podcasters. So definitely do that. If you're going to listen and enjoy it, give them, give them the rating and review. Um, Listen, man, it's been great. Is there anything I missed? Anything that you want to mention before we go? Or no, I think we we covered it all. I mean, fantastic interview. Um, you focused on questions that were focused towards my strengths, and I, you know, I hope the listeners are able to pull something out of this episode. Good, I think so. There was a lot of gold gold nuggets in there that people can uh, can take and run with. I think so. It helped. There's things in there that helped me as a landlord. I know that I'm gonna uh, that I'm gonna take away from this interview. So thanks for doing it, man. Uh, take care of yourself. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And uh, good luck to you in the future. Everything you do. Thank you. All right, man. Thanks. 
All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I had a good time interviewing Sean. He's a smart guy. He's seen this industry from a lot of different angles, both, uh, or I should say, including a mortgage broker or buy and hold investor, a property management company owner. He's seen a lot of things and he has a great perspective. And it's always a, a, a nice bonus to find out that he's in the Peace Corps. He's a good guy. He's, he's somebody who cares about giving back to the world. And I don't think that can be underemphasized uh, and it should never be uh, uh, something that we that we gloss over and and he glossed over because he's a humble guy obviously but uh, I don't want to gloss over that kind of stuff as a as a podcaster I think you guys should know when you're listening to someone who's got a good good heart coming from a good place and tons of knowledge to, to share with you on top of it so go check out his podcast guys uh, he's a good dude and uh, yeah I just I, I had a good time interviewing him I think there was a lot of a lot of nuggets in there that I, that are going to be useful going forward. So listen, if you want to be a buy hold guy, if you want to start a, a, a property management company for that matter, or you want to get your broker's license, you heard it. He did it once and he didn't. it didn't go well and he had to go back and refocus himself. But it, none of that starts if you don't actually get out there and go for it. You got to just start. So get out there and just start. Make today your best day. I'll see you next time.